This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. Please help President Trump. If you can fi- afford five or ten bucks, if you can't afford a dollar, fine. Just pray. After 50 years of skirting the law, after countless accusations and investigations, after two impeachment acquittals, the man who believed himself to be above the law finally faced the music on Tuesday in a Manhattan courtroom where he pleaded not guilty to 34 felony counts of falsifying business records. Trump gave $130,000 to Michael Cohen, who allegedly paid it to Stormy Daniels as hush money. In my opinion, this is just the beginning of what will be one long legal nightmare for Trump. Indictments, arrests, charges, lather, rinse, repeat, all that while he's still running for president against Joe Biden. He lost once already, but his lawyer Joe Tacopina said on MSNBC, I believe this will catapult him into the White House. Now, anyone with half a brain should know better. Earlier this afternoon, Donald Trump was arraigned on a New York Supreme Court indictment, returned by a Manhattan grand jury on 34 felony counts of falsifying business records in the first degree. Under New York state law, it is a felony to falsify business records with intent to defraud and an intent to conceal another crime. That is exactly what this case is about. 34 false statements made to cover up other crimes. These are felony crimes in New York State, no matter who you are. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg said during a press conference directly after the former president's historic arraignment that Trump falsified his business records with the explicit intent of covering up other crimes, such as violating New York state election laws, tax fraud, and exceeding the cap on federal campaign contributions. Bragg stressed that Manhattan is the financial center of the world. Accurate business records are especially important in Manhattan, where these sorts of cases are the bread and butter cases he handles as the district attorney. And I quote, These are felony crimes in New York State, no matter who you are. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the business capital of the world. Uh, We regularly uh, do cases involving false business statements. the, the, the bedrock, in fact, the basis for uh, business integrity and a well-functioning business marketplace is true and accurate record-keeping. That's the charge that's brought here, falsifying New York State business records. In the statement of facts that accompanies Bragg's 16-page indictment, it's alleged that three people were paid off as part of a catch-and-kill scheme. The doorman, Karen McDougal, and Stormy Daniels. And that Trump enlisted the help of David Pecker of National Enquirer fame, and of course yours truly, to make those payments. And because I'm a witness, I'm not going to say much about this case that isn't already public record. I'm also going to take the Rachel Maddow approach to Trump's repugnant campaign speech at Mar-a-Lago after his arraignment. Um, So far, he's just giving his normal list of grievances. We don't consider that necessarily newsworthy. And there's a cost to us as a news organization of knowingly broadcasting untrue things. So uh, our deal with you is that we will monitor these remarks. If he does say anything newsworthy, we will turn them around and report on that right away. But uh, for now, just know that it's happening and we're not taking it. Maddow said his remarks weren't newsworthy. Worthy. And I agree. 
so I won't be playing any of them here. CNN played 20 minutes with an Anderson Cooper caveat and then cut out. It was amazing there last night, and, and uh, his uh, his speech was great. It was what it was. Uh, uh, all the attacks, you know, everything they've done now, I think it just solidifies the 2024 election, and, and it unified it unified the people. But even after the strong warning given just that morning by Judge Juan Manuel Marchan, telling Trump to basically shut the fuck up and stop threatening violence, Trump got on stage and gave the judge the middle finger. And his idiot sons posted pictures of the judge's daughter on social media. Don Jr. claimed that Mashan's daughter worked for the Biden-Harris campaign and that his dad was, and I quote, being subjected to a hand-picked Democrat show trial. He did not use language. He requested that everybody involved refrain from using language that's inappropriate. Talk and by the way, that includes, that includes the witnesses, the witnesses for the people. Um, who are talking just but as much as it also includes the, the former president swinging a baseball bat at the head of the Manhattan DA. Well, I don't know where you got that because if that you'll... That was a tweet that was, out by the former president. You know, it wasn't. Tweet. And first of all, first of all, <laughs> first of all, that picture was not him swinging a baseball bat. I mean, if you want to distort the facts, go right ahead. I want to address that. Yes, it is. He wasn't swinging a baseball bat at anyone's head. That was a picture of him showing off an American-made bat. But Someone we'll, else we'll, put a picture of the district attorney next to him and in an article posted that. That's wait, not his wait, article, that's not his photo. Wednesday, it was reported that along with his family, Judge Mershon and the entire court had received dozens of unsubstantiated death threats after the hearing. Alvin Bragg and other court officials are also fielding threats that have been coming in from, I mean, from calls, emails, and letters. The court has since taken down information on the Meet Our Team section of its website. And perhaps the greatest police force on earth, and I'm referring to the New York Police Department, they're providing Bragg's office and those affected with extra security. So like Trump, Trump supporters don't think the rule of law should apply to them. People who are outraged by this indictment, they were not outraged by Trump's attempt to overturn a democratic election. They were not outraged by the violence on January 6th. They were not outraged by an illegal phone call to the Georgia Secretary of State, an illegal phone call to Volodymyr Zelensky. They are not outraged by multiple credible uh, uh, accusations of sexual harassment, assault, and rape. They're not outraged by Trump's sexist, bigoted, homophobic, xenophobic rhetoric. They're not outraged by his white nationalism. They're not outraged by his defense of anti-Semitism and, and neo-Nazis. They're not outraged by all that stuff. So with all due respect, no one should care that these people are outraged by this indictment. Big fat mogateers aren't probably gonna stop Mashan from slapping Trump with a gag order if he keeps talking this sort of shit. And he will keep talking because he can't believe that this is really happening. New Fox News poll shows that President Trump is way out in front with 54% support of Republican voters. Ron DeSantis behind at 24%. He's still thinking that he's going to turn his criminal indictment around somehow to his benefit. I mean, seriously, in his mind, why not? Ma and Pa Kettle are reaching under the mattress to pay his legal fees. And allegedly, his poll numbers even spiked. He was on the cover of newspapers around the world. But somewhere deep inside his fucking pea brain, he knows that this is the beginning of the end. And then at the last bit of this filing today in the narrative, 
they talk about the intimidation campaign to get Cohen to not talk. Yes, that's right. Right? They talk about the fact that Cohen was told, just be smart. Stick with us. We're good. Don't, you know, don't waver. You have friends in high places. You have friends in high places. But he ends up going down anyway. AMI, second part of the plan. They admit to the feds, yo, this was about trying to fix the election. Yeah. So two out of the three parties That's right. went south on him. And now here's Donald Trump alone. Hugo Lowell talked about having covered him a long time. This is the first time Donald Trump had no one who could fix it. In just a few years, Trump went from president to defendant. The Stormy Daniels cover-up definitely helped him win in 2016 because let's face it, he couldn't have survived more bad press around his disgusting treatment of women. A dalliance with a porn star would probably have been a bridge too far for the good old America back then. I mean, not after the grab him by the pussy tape or the fat pig insults that he hurled at Rosie O'Donnell. I mean, seriously, Hillary had nailed him during the first presidential debate for fat shaming Alicia Machado, a Miss Universe winner from Venezuela when he went ahead and he called her Miss Piggy when she was only 20 years old. This is a man who has called women pigs, slobs, and dogs. And someone who has said pregnancy is an inconvenience to employers, who has said, said women don't deserve equal pay unless they do as good a job as Didn't men. And one of the worst things he said was about a woman in a beauty contest. He loves beauty contests, supporting them and hanging around them. And he called this woman Miss Piggy. Then he called her Miss Housekeeping because she was Latina. Donald, she has a name. Where did you find her? Her name is Alicia Machado. Where did you find her? And she has become a U.S. citizen, and you can bet she's going to vote this November. Okay, good. He had been pals with Jeffrey Epstein, so girls were coming out of the woodwork to accuse him of rape. Had it also been known that he cheated on his wife, who was home with their new baby, I mean, it's doubtful that he could have won the election. But who knows? Everything could have been different. I mean, MAGA would now be a thing of the past. But for those still thinking that this case is just paperwork and no big deal... People felt it was a little underwhelming. Some found it disappointing. It depressed some people on the left. I asked you to do this, to consider two things. One... I went to jail for the same thing. And two, by paying off Daniels and McDougal and so on, Trump squeaked by to win the presidency. So in other words, he cheated to win. I mean, his whole presidency was nothing but a fucking lie. Every American, regardless of whether you're an independent, a liberal, Democrat, conservative, however you identify yourself, this should be an issue that all are united in. And here's a couple of quick observations about Tuesday's indictment circus. New Yorkers gave Marjorie Taylor Greene a good old-fashioned New York welcome. You filthy animal! You QAnon lunatic! Hit her with the space lasers! Blast her with the space lasers! Get the out of New York, you racist, sick, filthy, infected animal! She lasted a whole two minutes on the streets before realizing that her influence doesn't reach much past her backward Georgia district. And ditto that for fucking asshole George Santos. I mean, this asshole was out there looking around feverishly for Trump supporters, found fucking no one, and then scurried off as reporters chased him from the scene. I mean, Marge and Santos are the perfect people to come out swinging for Donald Trump. 
Why? Because they are exactly like him. They're fucking fake politicians, narcissistic media whores. I mean, just simply ugly people inside and out. By Wednesday, Don Jr. was sending around a stop political persecution petition. And we all know how effective petitions are in a court of law. The president has been asked a number of times about the indictment, and he has made a very conscious and clear choice to say that he is not going to talk about it. I was one of the reporters who asked him about this uh, the other day, and clearly this is a decision the White House has made, that there is no need for the current president to wade into uh, the issues involving the former president, especially a declared candidate uh, for what could be a rematch of uh, the uh, presidential election of 2020 coming up in 2024. So they've made a decision that because the president is the head of government, uh, that he's going to focus on the work in front of him and not get involved in that. The Biden administration has done the smart thing and completely avoided the subject of Trump altogether, saying only that he has faith in the United States legal system. Though a heavily edited clip from 2022 is circulating around MAGA circles that makes the false claim that Biden had arranged the indictment all by himself. But let's get to some of the good stuff that's happened so far this week. A high-stakes battle for a seat on the state's highest court in Wisconsin drew national attention as the technically nonpartisan race became politically turbocharged. Democratic-backed Janet Protasiewicz ultimately defeated the conservative Daniel Kelly by double digits. And isn't that often that the election of a single justice has that dramatic effect? on an institution's, on a court's ideology. In the most expensive Supreme Court race in U.S. history, Wisconsin's elected liberal Milwaukee County Judge Janet Protasius. She crushed her asshat MAGA opponent Tuesday by literally by double digits. And in doing so, she will break the conservative stronghold on the court. I've been committed to the rule of law my entire career. I understand this to be the most fundamental basic promise of civilization. And in its heart, it lives in the judiciary, and if not there, nowhere at all. We've had this laid out plainly for us. We could have the rule of law or the rule of Janet. And the people of Wisconsin have chosen the rule Janet. The current conservative court majority helped the right lock in power for the Republican-dominated legislature. But Protasiewicz's win will provide a much-needed check on the Wisconsin GOP. From insane redistricting maps to reviving abortion laws from the 1800s, Wisconsin lawmakers have shamelessly tried to dismantle democracy. But no more. Protasiewicz will be sworn in this summer. But I'm going to bet that in the meantime, the current court will try and ram through laws to protect their far-right agenda. Our brother, teacher, organizer, warrior, Karen Lewis's protege, our brother, commissioner, and now mayor of Chicago, Brandon Johnson. Make some noise in the Chicago's mayoral race is always a little crazy, but there was shock and awe on the streets of the Windy City on Tuesday when liberal candidate Brandon Johnson defeated moderate Paul Vallis in a race that focused on two very different approaches to crime. Vallis was a traditional hire more cops guy, 
while Johnson campaigned on getting to the root of what causes crime and criminal behavior in the first place. Johnson was a county commissioner and former teachers union organizer, and his strong ties to the city's powerful teachers union helped get him over the finish line. Today, the dream is alive. And so today, we celebrate the revival and the resurrection of the city of Chicago. Johnson was backed by the likes of Bernie Sanders and is said to be further to the left than his progressive predecessor, the controversial Lori Lightfoot. In his victory speech, Johnson proclaimed, and I quote, Today, we celebrate the revival and the resurrection of the city of Chicago. It is time for Chicago to come alive. And I feel that way about the whole country. Trump is just background noise. It's a brand new day and our future is bright. He was arrested and released and we never got a mugshot, but that did not stop the ex-president's campaign from making one up and selling it on a t-shirt that says, not guilty. Okay, but if he's not guilty, why did you put him in a mugshot? Just sell a poster that says, wanted for following too many laws. And now for the main event. Today we welcome back to our show my good friend Norm Eisen. There's pretty much nothing going on in politics today that Eisen doesn't have an educated opinion about. Eisen is a CNN legal analyst and the founder and executive chair of States United Democracy Center, a nonpartisan organization advancing free, fair, and secure elections. Eisen served as special counsel to President Barack Obama on ethics, and in that role, he was dubbed Mr. No and the ethics czar because he was well known for his tough anti-corruption approach to governance. Eisen is also active with the Brookings Institute and other groups working to expose the myriad of ways that Trump and others like him broke the law and attempted to overturn the 2020 election. Eisen is also working with the Brookings Institute to help Ukraine recover and thrive once Putin's war has ended. So let's go now to that conversation. All right, so Norm, as always, it's great to have you back on the show. And I think we just need to jump right into it. And we, we need to discuss the charges against Trump that were presented in Tuesday's Manhattan arraignment. Now, I want to start by saying that today... I'm not going to be giving any of my fabulous commentary. Rather, I'm going to be asking Norm. I'm going to ask you, Norm, right? Mr. No, Mr. Ethics Czar here. I'm going to ask you a series of questions Thank about you. the arraignment. All right. And we'll get into we'll get into some of the things that the judge said, that Trump said, prosecutors said, and so on. So let me start by asking you the very first question. Yes. What stands out to you most about yesterday's Manhattan DA's arraignment? The thing that stands out to me most, Michael, is that um, yesterday's arraignment was really about accountability for election interference. As I wrote in the New York Times, uh, uh, the... Um, the and on CNN opinion, there was so much to say that I had to write two 
opinion pieces, uh, Michael. Um, the 2016 election interference that um, that occurred, which could have swung the election, um, uh, because it was such a close election, a little over 70,000 votes in three states, and another sex scandal coming right after Access Hollywood could have been the end of the Trump campaign. That's a democracy crime. Yes, it's a false books and records alleged crime. Yes, it's a campaign finance crime that you served time for. You stood up. You admitted it. You made amends. Um, and uh, but above all, uh, it's 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 an allegation about our democracy, and it was the gateway drug for the 2019 um, election interference, where Trump asked the president of Ukraine to attack his then leading opponent, who ultimately beat him, Joe Biden. That's election interference, and and of course the 2020 attempt to overturn the legitimate election results. So that's what stood out to me the most. Of course, I couldn't help but thinking about you. Um, and, and, and friends, I'm so honored that Michael invited me on the podcast because now that the case has been arraigned, of course, he's an important witness. Um, he's not able to say every single thing he might want to say. And as a friend of this podcast, as a friend of Michael's, uh, he and I actually became friends through investigating the Hush Money case together because one of the first things I did when I was appointed impeachment counsel was to come to New York, visit with Michael, talk to him, The hush because the Hush Money case was an impeachable offense. It was an assault against our democracy. That's just what impeachment is about. Corruption that affects elections. That's what the founders and framers wanted. So we became friends as a result. Michael, you've never wavered in your story as I was thinking about you watching the arraignment, writing my two pieces. It's hard to write two simultaneous opinion pieces. It's for the hard number enough to write one. <laughs> it was for the, and Michael, I'm so proud for the number one and the number two news most viewed U.S. news website. So we covered the false claims about the case. And I'm not going to ask you to comment on this. You're a witness. I wrote with one of your great predecessors. I think uh, Michael Cohen is the uh, John Dean of our generation. So I wrote with one of your great predecessors. Just listen, everybody. Michael, I wish you could see him on screen as he's biting his lip, letting me talk. <laughs> You're doing look, great, look, look, First of all, You're yeah, I appreciate great. that. First of all, I, I, I still to this, I don't consider myself to be a hero. You know, it's my case obviously is somewhat different than John Dean's. It's similar, but um, hero. Oh, I don't accept. No, I didn't say you. you know, I, I didn't say you were. You know, I didn't say you were identical to John Dean, but I do think you yeah. have that role in our in our generation. And I know for me in the impeachment, you had that role. So you asked me, what were my thoughts? I thought about democracy. I thought about that history. I thought about how I investigated these hush money uh, offenses as high crimes and misdemeanors. And I thought about my friend Michael. And there's one other thing I thought, uh, which is uh, it, it, once I got the papers in the case, there is a, if you'll pardon my expression, shit 
ton of corroboration for every single point in this case. So, um, you know, as important as Michael Cohen is uh, into the story, every single point is heavily, heavily corroborated. And these 40 detailed 44 paragraphs of the statements of facts that Alvin Brad filed, tip of the iceberg. Yeah. You know, I was watching CNN this morning with uh, Don, uh, Poppy and Caitlin and yes. your co-author, Karen uh, Friedman uh, Agnifilo, who's new as a legal analyst there uh, on CNN, she's, she pushed back and in a brilliant way. And I suspect that this is based upon the writing that the two of you did together in that New York Times piece. But she pushed back against this tidal wave, this tidal wave of critics that want to sit there and say that Alvin Bragg's case against Donald Trump is a weak case. Why did he bring it? I've had friends who are with the D, who used to work at the DA's office. I have friends from, well, I can't even call him a friend anymore. He's an idiot and a half who's just a massive Trump supporter cursing at me, you know, on, you know, on a text message that this is a bullshit case. This is the weakest of all the cases. Why did Alvin Bragg go forward with this? And so when she pushed back and she turned around and she said, I don't think that you understand what's inside this document. And I don't think that you understand that we're not supposed to be <laughs> categorizing which case, which <laughs> crime is more relevant than the other. Let the DA, let Fannie Willis bring her case when she's ready. Let Special Counsel Smith bring his case or cases when he's ready and so on. As just did Alvin Bragg. He brought his case when he felt comfortable and so on. In, in fact, the name of the article that the two of you penned is called We Finally Know the Case Against Trump. And it is strong. Do me a favor. Put your take onto it. You know, one of the things I love about coming on with you and, and friends who are listening, uh, you know, Michael, as you know, he has a mind of his own. So he makes me think when I come on. Um, uh, I think of things I never thought before, and then I sit and think some more. My uh, take uh, is that um, the misdemeanor the core misdemeanor offense, which is a lesser included offense here of, of falsifying books and records is a slam dunk. You can't, you know, say that hush money payments are legal fees. Um, I think that the I've written tens of thousands of words about this. I think that the critics who don't understand the how New York books and records cases proceed are way underestimating the case. Is it a 100% guaranteed victory? No, no case is. Uh, no. But boy, it's a strong case. It's not novel. Trump is the 30th defendant to face a books and records case uh, since just since Bragg took office a little over a year ago from the Manhattan DA. There have been um, uh Hundreds and hundreds of these cases. I cataloged some of the most similar ones, more than 50. 
That's just the most similar ones in New York. That includes multiple cases that fit the exact pattern here. Falsifying records to cover up campaign finance and possible tax issues. Um, you have you have that pattern of falsification to hide campaign finance illegalities. I do not want you to comment on this. One of the big conversations with truly my beloved friend, Michael, that I'm constantly having with him as, you know, the saying unavailable for comment, Michael, you're unavoidable for comment. So I'm constantly telling him, don't comment. Do not comment on what I'm about to say, Michael. Um, but um, uh, it's a very common matter to prosecute these campaign finance violations. And that's why Michael went to jail. So the injustice of that, how can we say no one is above the law if Michael goes to jail and not Trump? So I just think that I just you're going to comment. I can't stop you. But I just think that the critics, it's well-intentioned. It's not like what Trump and his lawyers are saying. That's disinformation. Like that intent to defraud is not proven. It's ridiculous if you have an agreement to hide campaign finance, possible tax issues. Ridiculous. But, but um, the good faith critics, I think, need to crack the books. And that's why I keep writing all this stuff. And that's why I have two op-eds up. New York Times CNN opinion. So I'm going to read to you from Karen Friedman Agnifilo her statement today when they brought this up on that CNN piece. Yeah, she said, she's I think terrific, isn't she? She fantastic. I think it's wrong. And of course, you know, her pedigree uh, coming from that office is just, you know, you can't get better than that. So she says, I think it's strong because in addition to the indictment that was filed, they also filed a statement of facts, which, and then Poppy jumps in and says 13 pages. And Karen responds, yeah, 13 pages of a statement of facts really details the evidence and the charges and the theory of the case against him. And it is clear that they have a lot of corroboration here. You've got not just the word of Michael Cohen. You've got Michael Cohen. You've got David Pecker, who was the CEO of AMI that owned the National Enquirer. And they had a conspiracy. Same thing that you're referring to. The three of them to catch and kill negative stories during the time of the presidential campaign. And it's that they have the proof. They have emails, text messages, recordings. And so, and the timing really shows that that's the case. And she goes on and on. Now, Another thing that constantly is now getting brought up is the fact that the SDNY ended up, once Trump was no longer president, they decided not to move forward with the case. In fact, they had Cy Vance on yesterday evening who turned around and he said he was contacted by the by the Southern District of New York, when all of this mischievous in my life was going on, when all this crazy shit was happening, Cy Vance was contacted by the SDNY, by those dirty motherfuckers who turned around and they decided to tell him to stand down. Stand down. Don't do anything. Now, let's just couple that fact with Jeffrey Berman who was the former head of the Southern District, who was contacted by Maine Justice and told what to do, despite he was allegedly recused himself. Instead, 
What did he end up doing? He decided to give immunity both to David Pecker, gave immunity to Alan Weisselberg, uh, didn't prosecute on Trump, writes in his book that he didn't want to get fired. You know, I filed a grievance, a bar grievance against him. I got back the decision yesterday, turned around saying that even though I had asked for a reevaluation of their initial decision not to hold him accountable for unethical or illegal behavior, I got a letter yesterday saying that they're standing by their first decision. There's no accountability for these people, except yesterday, as you stated accurately, Donald Trump is now being held accountable. And we, as the citizens, as the taxpayers in this country, we need to hold people in power accountable. And this sort of bullshit cannot stand. Jeffrey Berman should be held accountable for what he did. The Southern District, Tom McKay, Nick Roos, um, you know, Adri- uh, what's her name? Uh, Griswold, Andrea Griswold, all of them. They all need to be held accountable. Bill Barr, he needs to be held accountable. And despite the fact that we're over two and a half years now into the letter from Hakeem Jeffries, Ted Lieu, I mean, even new ones by Steve Cohen, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, um, Senator Dick Durbin, everyone has put in requests for investigations to be opened. And you know so far what's happened? Nothing. Zilch. Accountability. Well... Michael, it's a very, um, uh, it's a very um, long road to accountability. You know that I, I also feel strongly about the um, wrongdoing. Uh, that took place under Bill Barr at the Justice Department. Uh, We'll never know the full extent of it, most likely. Um, I wrote along afterward for your book explaining my own concerns, a little less colorfully than you do. Um, But the the good news is that in, you know, and it's, it's hard for someone, I know it's hard for you, um, having been through what you've been through, um, you know, to see what Bill Barr did to the Justice Department, what happened under Bill Barr at the Justice Department. But the good news is um, Alvin Bragg has made one part of that right. However, DOJ wrongly killed uh, the Trump case. And, you know, again, in um, less colorful language, but with equal uh, you know, with 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 equal conviction, I, I believe it was terribly wrong for DOJ not to pursue the campaign finance charges against Trump. Um, I know how tough it is. I did not succeed in including them in the impeachment. Um, even though we investigated them, we had good claims. There just was tremendous internal pushback. It was not corrupt. It was a judgment, a judgment I disagreed with. I think under Bill Barr, the DOJ was corrupted. So the, the, but I prefer to focus on the progress and, you know, the indictment and arraignment of Trump represents progress. Like anyone, 
he's innocent until proven guilty. Um, there's an over, there's an overwhelming, uh, there's an overwhelming amount of evidence. And uh, this is far from the last case. He has got a tsunami of criminal and civil accountability coming his way. So, Norm, let me ask you this then, because just prior to the recording of this, you and I were talking about Judge Mershon and his expectations of a certain amount of decorum uh, by the prosecutors by the defendants he you believe witnesses as well in order to be careful what they say and to uphold the rule of law yes just hours after that court appearance and i'm talking about from the time that the orange crusted mandarin mussolini took that fat ass up onto his plane and then landed and returned it to marilardo He's sitting there and waiting before a group of Moralardoans, right? And he decides to give a speech. And, of course, he decides to have dinner with the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, right? Because the poor baby's ego, his fragile ego, got beaten up sitting there, right, beneath the judge who he has contempt for and having to go through the process of the arraignment. But the second he stands up on that podium at Marilardo in the ballroom, he starts to attack the investigation into him. Of course, denies all wrongdoing. He's the victim, right? And he then proceeds once again to criticize the judge, his daughter, the wife. I mean, he goes on saying, I have a Trump-hating judge with a Trump-hating wife and family whose daughter worked for Vice President Kamala Harris and now receives money from the Biden-Harris campaign. I mean, he goes on to do every single thing that the judge just told him not to do. Then Andrew Weissman went on, you know, and he was on television, you know, the former federal prosecutor, and he starts talking about the comments that Trump is making not just about Mishan, his wife, daughter, but about Jack Smith. He, of course, makes fun of him uh, at this, whatever you want to call it, this gathering of goofballs. And then he turns around and he talks about um, Fonnie Willis. He talks about Tish James, anybody that's against him. Whereas Weissman then calls his comments appalling and that heads of organized crime gangs would not behave in such a way, which I thought was interesting. And his exact quote, you do not have this behavior from a mob boss. There is a rule in organized crime that you do not do this with respect to prosecutors. You do not do this with respect to the judge. You certainly don't go after their families. It's bad business to do that. What the hell is Donald thinking, if anything at all? Um, Well, Michael, I I don't believe he's able to um, control himself any longer. And he was not gagged. Uh, No gag order was put into place. Uh, As I told Jim Acosta on CNN over the weekend, I didn't think prosecutors were going to seek one. I thought they were going to give him enough rope and see if he hangs himself. And he's well on the way to doing that. Uh, and uh, I don't think yesterday's remarks are going to be sufficient to bring that about. Uh, but but that 
day of reckoning for his words is coming. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, I can't say that it was, uh, I can't say it was uh, unpacked here. Um, so um, there'll be more, there'll be further to go, but um, he's not going to be able, in my view, to keep carrying on like this. At some point, uh, the court is going to get fed up with him. Norm, what are they waiting for? For somebody to get hurt? I mean, you know, what's it going to take in order to place a gag order on... I'm not saying he wants to go and he wants to claim his innocence to the press. God bless him. I wish to God that I had done that. That when I was being attacked by Southern District of New York. Of course, I only had 48 hours. So how much are you going to get done on a Friday to a Monday? But Don Jr. himself then goes ahead because Don's trying to crawl up. You know, he's trying to get daddy's love and attention. He posts a picture of the judge's um, daughter on their Truth Social or wherever the hell that he put it up. That's serious stuff. And again, a lot, a lot of these magas are unhinged, and somebody could easily get hurt. I'm just trying to figure out how much more does this lunatic in chief have to do before which somebody like Judge Mershon, who's a no-nonsense judge, will not take Donald's shit. That's for sure. He's going to turn around and say, you crossed the goddamn line, Donald. All right? And here's your last warning. I mean, personally, I'll tell you what I would love to see. I'd love to see Mershon call up one of the crackerjack lawyers that was sitting at that table, right, and say, I want Donald in my office on Friday. Put his ass back onto the plane, bring him back here to New York, all right, sit him down, explain to him what he can and he can't do in third grade terms, right? Maybe draw it out in crayon so that he understands it with maybe some stick figures, what you can and you can't do. And the next time that you do this, I place a gag order on you. And then I'm going to bring you back in to serve you with that gag order. And then you do it again. Then I'm holding you in contempt and you're going to be sleeping the night in jail. This is the only way to deal with Donald. The judge is not going to do that because of the First Amendment, the jurisprudence around gag orders, the practice in courts of giving a defendant a chance and another chance, the coded language, uh, the high-profile nature of the case. The, everybody has been put on notice. It was discussed in court, including the two most disturbing statements in my view, quote, death and destruction, close quote, which was the closest thing we had to the will be wild tweet that triggered January 6th, set up January 6th. Um, and uh, the image of Trump swinging a baseball bat at Bragg's head. Um, and now they're going to let it play out. You know, there's a saying, Michael, in the halls of justice, justice is in the halls. And what that means is one of the first things I learned as a young trial lawyer getting trained on how to do criminal trials here in D.C., in D.C. Superior Court, 
one of the great metropolitan um, criminal dockets in the country. You get a little bit of everything. Um, and one of the that was one of the first things they taught me. And what it means is the law is not just what's written in the books. It comes to life. It comes off the page by the culture and the practice. And the practice is, you know, you're not going to gag a defendant, even one as loose-lipped as Trump uh, on the first day of the case at the arraignment. If he keeps it up and he crosses the line, he's going to get gagged. And if he doesn't respect the gag order, then you're looking at contempt and you know, um, possible uh, pretrial incarceration. So, um, we'll just, but we're far from that right now. Like uh, I said, I think that, I think Michonne would be making a mistake until, and listen, somebody gets hurt, then, you know, I don't want to be the guy to turn around to say, hey, I told you so, but this is what Donald does. This is exactly what we saw on January 6th. And I'm afraid that with his incendiary language, that that's something that can happen again. But Norm, let me just move on and ask you this question, because look, a lot of people were very angry um, about Alvin Bragg a year ago with the Mark Pomerantz scenario, not bringing the case as it was provided when he first took the office as the um, district attorney of New York. So why do you think that Alvin Bragg decided that now was the time to prosecute Trump after earlier dropping the case. And what do you think finally changed his mind? I think that um, the guy's only been there for a year, a little over a year. We know that from Vance, we know that DOJ told Vance uh, not to proceed on this direction. Uh, while Vance was in office. So Bragg started with a fresh slate. We know from Vance that uh, he did not decide to bring or not bring the case. He really did pass the torch to Bragg. You know, I think Bragg correctly blocked out the politics and went about building a case. You know, Michael, the vast amount of this case uh, is uh, comprised of other witnesses, documents, texts, emails, checks, check stubs, ledger entries. Um, there's a pile of corroboration. It takes time to assemble that, to check it, to build the theory of the case. Look, I've written extensively um, hundreds and hundreds of pages of legal analysis about the case over the past two years. And as I say, I spent a lot of time investigating it, uh, starting with talking with you and reviewing all the evidence. I spent almost uh, almost uh, a year looking at the case before Ukraine events happened and we decided to proceed on impeachment based on Ukraine. Um, it, it, it takes time to put a case together. And I think Bragg went when he was ready. Good for him. And... Um, it, solid job on the indictment and the statement of facts. I thought he did a good job announcing it. He did not leak. Everybody was surprised by the 
filing of the indictment last Thursday, that's a positive thing. And uh, I am um, impressed so far. And we'll see where he goes with it. Okay. Listen, I totally agree with you. Can you just touch for a quick second more on the whole Southern District of New York telling the District Attorney of New York, stand down on this, stand down on the co-conspirator on any potential charges that could be brought Can we then talk about how Jeffrey Berman did the same thing, how the determination, how they decided that they were going to scrub Donald Trump's name from, uh, you know, the 42 page um, document by the Southern District of New York, not to call him by his first name and only to call him individual number one and try to get rid of that as well. Can you tell me why, as the former ethics czar, Right, that nobody so far has been successful in getting a single document out of government on this. And the fact that nobody at the Southern District is being held accountable because it goes to my next question here. A lot of people, a lot, have been texting me and, like I said, former, pro- former prosecutors wanting Brad to justify bringing Trump into Manhattan on the $130,000, right, the hush money, as opposed to, for example, doing it via Zoom, right? Considering that it costs millions of dollars in resources, police, security, the whole nine yards. And you and I both know, and people who have an open mind know that there's more to the case than just that. But truth be told, there's too many average Americans that don't. Do you think that bringing him in for this arraignment and doing everything that they did is worth it? Basically telling the world, telling every single American the adage that no man is above the law? I do. And uh, I think it's well worth it. And I, you know, I, as I wrote with John Dean, John Dean and I, and Michael, you're, you're a good member of the Troika uh john dean and i have a lot of experience with the investigation of uh presidential crimes and misdemeanors high crimes and misdemeanors low crimes and misdemeanors john of course was a uh witness the critical witness um maybe i should say uh john dean was the michael cohen of his day uh against witness in what would have been against Nixon in what would have been the impeachment proceedings against in and if Nixon hadn't resigned and what would have been the criminal trial indictment that was being prepared if Trump uh, if uh, Ford hadn't pardoned Nixon um, have Trump on the brain this morning um, and uh, and of course I did the uh, impeachment against Trump uh, and litigated the very first case brought against him as president. Uh, Literally the second after he raised his hand, we filed our first emoluments matter. um, And I was involved in opening hundreds of other legal matters against Trump in the years that followed. Most prominently the impeachment. And I'm still doing it. I'm still filing briefs in many of these cases. um, so from that perspective, I think 
that the rule of law matters. My study as a former ambassador of other countries commonly proceed against chief executives. My work as an ethics czar, other um, states and the federal government bringing many cases against political figures, including state and local chief executives, mayors, governors. We just had a con con corruption conviction um, in Los Angeles of one of the formerly most powerful members of the board of supervisors there. Um, if it, it's like the legislature um, um, uh, and, you know, L.A. would be a large country if it were a freestanding economy. So, you know, he was just convicted. This is vitally what has happened here is vitally important for all the frustrations. And I know you sometimes do feel those frustrations and you express yourself very vividly about it uh, <laughs> for all for all. But for all the frustrations, um, uh, you know, it's it, it is a bumpy path to accountability against the once most powerful man in the country and the world and still one of the very best known individuals on the planet. You know, I litigated against Trump. I know how hard it is. I was on the receiving end of those uh, of the tweets and the abuse and the manipulation and the disinformation when we were doing impeachment. Um, I struggled with questions about, like Bragg did, uh, when Bragg, you know, offered Trump to appear before the grand jury. Um, how, how, how do you extend rights to somebody like that when you know they're going to abuse them? But uh, in the end of the day, uh, it's the right thing to do that, and it's the right thing to bring the cases. Bragg is doing the right thing. Right. I understand that. But now I want to bring it back to the SDNY, since we'll all acknowledge that no one is above the law. Same should hold true for Southern District of New York. Same should hold true for Jeffrey Berman, for Nick Roos, Tom McKay, Andrea Griswold, and all of those that participated in not just the, I mean, not just the first go around. I mean, who gives 48 hours when you have never in your life? And I talk about it all the time. I, there is no tax evasion. And I'll say it, and I hope that they try to bring it up on, on, uh, on cross, you know, when I'm there on the witness stand, I've said it. I wrote a whole book about it, Revenge, on what transpired here, on the disgusting behavior of those who have power over another. How come no one from the SDNY, how come after nine months after a judge ordered that the government is supposed to start processing at a minimum of 500 documents per month under FOIA, I not not only have I not gotten the 4,500 documents that I should have, I haven't gotten even a single one. They continue to say, well, methods and process, we can't get. And then the judge says, well, you have to turn it over. And then they come back with the same bullshit month after month after month. How come there's no accountability by the SDNY? There's no accountability by FOIA. And what makes me madder than hell is the fact that we're in a democratic Right now, government, Merrick Garland should be on top of this shit. But sleepy Merrick is just sitting there. No, 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 Michael, no, no. 
No, he's done you know, absolutely wrote, nothing, and nobody could say anything different. And Joe Biden needs to turn around and take control of his justice. Oh, no, God forbid. God forbid Joe Biden would have anything to do with this. Replace well, him. I- Replace him. Replace <laughs> him with someone that wants to do work. I have to. I have to dissent. First of all, um, Jack Smith is very actively pursuing the um, classified documents investigation and the January 6th attempted coup election overthrow investigation. So Merrick Garland has uh, appointed a fierce special counsel who's looking at, um, you know, looking at two fresh cases, rightly or wrongly. I think they were wrongly closed. Those other matters were closed by the Trump Justice Department. The place where we're going to see accountability, um, I feel your pain. I really do, on a personal basis. But the place where we're going to see accountability is in the states for the 2016 election interference, uh, Alvin Bragg, and for the 2020 election interference, Fonnie Willis. And Michael, something I don't think we've ever talked about on the show, and we should talk about it. Not just Fonnie Willis. Your listeners should know, if you're paying close attention, other AGs uh, around the country are paying attention to what's happened in New York. uh, And uh, Fonnie, uh, uh, and in Georgia, now in New York and Georgia, you have local DAs in other places, according to press reports. you have AGs. They are looking at that election overturn. So I wouldn't be surprised. We should we should start the analysis right here on mea culpa, Michael. I wouldn't be surprised at all if you saw additional state cases. That's where you're going to get more accountability. So I don't, I might disagree. Frankly, you want to know, and you're involved in this too. You want to know the my biggest disagreement respectful disagreement with DOJ. It's that the uh, Bill Barr utterly distorted the facts and the law to cover up for Trump on the at least five obstruction of justice charges and probably 10 that any other American would have been charged with uh, that were laid out in the Mueller report. So where's the investigation, Norm? It's not. That's my most biggest, most respectful disagreement. I'm so sorry. Wait, wait. I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Mr. Ambassador. My question to you then would be, (laughs) my question would be, who would be the one then to bring the investigation to the forefront? Would it not be the Attorney General of the United States of America? Would he not be the one? Here's what happened, Michael. (laughs) you're going to yell at me. You're not going to like this. Merrick Garland made a judgment that that case, rightly or wrongly, had been closed by his predecessor, that he inherited a DOJ that was in in disarray, that was severely damaged, and that he was not going to look in the rearview mirror. He was going to move forward. And he was going to, if they arose, prosecute new matters. He's doing that with the special counsel. He's doing that with the January 6th crimes and not reopen the decisions of Bill Barr. I disagree with it. 
And hence, um, I rest my case, which is why he needs to be replaced. And we need to have somebody right. that's more interested in the protection of law and in order to reestablish the, the um, DOJ as a legitimate arm of government, not the illegitimate arm that became Donald Trump's, you know, um, personal law firm and personal hit squad. So can I ask you this, though, since we brought up uh, Jack Smith in the Mar-a-Lardo documents case, because I've heard and I've read that it appears to be wrapping up. And yes, Merrick Garland appointed Jack Smith. Does that mean that now the guy like with Ted Cruz is off to Cancun, you know, for a vacation because he appointed Jack Smith? Merrick Garland's not the one doing the work. That's Jack Smith. But allegedly this case is wrapping up. What signs do you see that that's happening? And more importantly, do you think that that's the next case to drop against Trump? Or do you think it'll be the DA Fonnie Willis's case? What do you think is next? Uh, I think the waterfall of troubles for Trump are, um, one, Fonnie Willis. Yes, Fonnie Willis is I next agree. in Georgia. I think the, What's your time um, frame? I think the... Um, I, I would expect something as soon as... April feels a little soon to me because she's going through this process that now processing the special grand jury report, dealing with that before the regular grand jury. I would guess May, May, you know, certainly sometime before summer holidays. And then after that, you know, in parallel with that or after the classified documents case, the federal classified documents case. I think the federal January 6 case is trailing for various reasons. There's various indicators that the classified documents case is moving faster, including the getting Trump's lawyer, Evan Corcoran, to forcing him to testify under the crime fraud exception to attorney crime pro- client privilege. And they, they, there's just a lot. They're bringing witnesses back a second time. There's signs that that grand jury is wrapping up. It's not totally out of the question that that could be faster than um than willis um and then you know we should keep an eye on the civil cases uh the it trump's not a defendant but boy that fox dominion case wow 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 that's going to trial in april that's going to be very impactful and um the eugene carroll libel case that's going to damage Trump, civil, but going to damage Trump reputationally, financially, I think. That's going to trial in April. In October, you have the quasi-death penalty case. Effectively, it'll shut down the Trump organization being in Trump hands. If um, New York AG Tish James is successful in securing relief, um, that case is based on a lot of the stuff that you talk to Congress about. Uh, when you came clean, the financial misconduct. Uh, and as I say, there, I think there are other cases in the pipeline behind that. So that's what the year ahead looks like. And Judge Marshawn set this um, Bragg case down for trial in January. Judge Marshawn is a very no-nonsense judge. Trump can't do a lot of the delaying appeals. He's got some procedural tricks potentially up his sleeve. Um, so, you know, we'll see what We'll see what happens. Uh, and of course, it's all playing out against the backdrop of the uh, of the uh, political season. So going to be very, very interesting. 
You know what's also interesting? If you take the uh, Mar-a-Lardo documents case by Jack Smith, this is where Donald should really, as you rightfully put it from the beginning, stay off television and maybe just retreat to the golf course while he's still permitted to do so without an ankle monitor. So he's sitting with an interview with Sean Hannity and the fool admits to willful retention of documents. Sean Hannity could not have thrown him a better softball by saying to him, Donald, you would never hold on to classified documents. I mean, you know, that deliberately possess these documents. Um, And he goes, no, 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 Sean, Sean. He goes, I'm the president. They're my documents. I can do whatever I want with them. They're mine. He goes, under the Presidential Records Act, And then, of course, he starts to talk about, which, of course, he clearly doesn't know that that's not true. The president does not own the documents. It's owned by the American people. But then he has to throw in his favorite thing, which is Joe Biden had tens of thousands of documents and and he stored tens. That's also not true. I mean, in one sentence, you have just a multitude of lies, which is amazing. So I would like you, I, I believe that. The Fonnie Willis, the DA uh, case will be next, but I think very shortly after that, I think you're going to see the Mar-a-Lago case um, come to fruition because I think it's also a very easy case to prove, very much like Bragg's case, because it's based solely on documents and the fact that he possessed it and using his own words, he knew he had them. And he was going to keep them because he was allowed to in his own mind. But can I move on for one quick second and ask you this? So Alan Weisselberg, right, former CFO at the Trump Org, he's almost done with his stint in Rikers. But right now, I'm hearing that there might be new charges brewing and that there's pressure on him to potentially testify and truthfully regarding Trump. Now, he just got a new lawyer, which is, um, you know, Paid for. I don't know if it's paid for by Trump or not, but can you read the tea leaves and tell us what you think is next for Weisselberg, if anything? No, I can't read the tea leaves on Weisselberg. It's very mysterious to me. Will he be forced to testify? Did they bring him in to testify before the grand jury? Did they get relevant testimony in the prior grand jury to lock him in on these points so he's not a hostile witness. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of Weisselberg evidence in the statement of facts. Did some of that come from him? Some comes from documents and other sources. Some comes from you. Don't comment on that, please. Um, but you can tell <laughs> just from reading it. Don't comment. I'll accept the laugh. Don't comment otherwise. Um, the... Um, the um, uh, the tea leaves are murky. You know, it's funny. Somebody asked me on TV, what's your prediction? I And I stopped them. I said, I don't make predictions. I analyze what's going on based on the evidence and the law that I have in front of me today. Today. Um, and I'm not able to analyze exactly what's going on with Weisselberg. Boy, they really did. If they did not force 
some cooperation on this, at least to block him out in advance so you know what he'll say as a defense witness and you can impeach him. I don't know what to think if the DA's office didn't do that. They're very experienced operators over there. They do this all the all the time. So uh, even though they didn't get full cooperation from him, I got to think that at least they know what, what he'll say if Trump calls him. Can I go back to something that we were talking about, the insurrection? Because you played a major role in trying to hold Donald and others accountable for their participation. Do you think that any of Trump's henchmen in the House and the Senate will ever be held accountable for their participation in the insurrection? Because, in all fairness, that seems to be the biggest case against Trump, if we're going to put it, like, in a horse race, right? We're, we're going to pick the trifecta here, which is first, second, third, and then fourth, right? But I also believe that it's the hardest to prosecute. So these guys in the House and uh, in, in the Senate, they're still out there pretending that the big lie is the truth. They keep going on television and discounting exactly what we know really happened. What do we have to do to prosecute them? If anything, is, is there any way to hold them accountable? Because right now, that's the word of the day, accountability. Um, well, um, I think that the most, I'm going to say something else that is going to aggravate you now. Oh, that's boy. part of why, that's, well, that's part of why people love to listen. Do you know how many people tell me, they say, you know, it's like going to the bar and having a beer with you and Michael. <laughs> like, people love that because neither one of us holds back at all, right? So I think the most important ingredient, accountability for Trump, accountability for others, what's happening with these cases, the most important ingredient now is patience. The cases are happening. I went on TV, Michael, I was on, other than Shabbat, I think I was on TV like 14 days in a row, which is the most I've done on CNN. I'm exclusive to CNN. The most I've done since the second impeachment. Uh, 14 days in a row telling people charges were coming. It's a good case. You got to have some patience. Um, and I think what we need to have now for the sake of accountability is patience. I think we need to, you know, as... As I said, when we started, we need to be judicious in what we say. We need to let prosecutors do their thing. We need to reserve judgment like we're at the beginning of this case. You know, there's much more to come. Um, uh, and I think we need to be patients. Account patient. Accountability is coming. Let it work. Re read the tea leaves when you can. I've done that with you today. When you can't read the tea leaves, like with Weisselberg, say so. Reserve judgment. Uh, I believe prosecutors, very effective, Bragg, Willis, Jack Smith, others who in the states who are looking at potential 2020 election interference crimes in their states, let them do their jobs. Uh, and uh, you are not a patient person, but for you, for you know everybody what, Norm, listening, you know what, even for I those am, who I aren't am. listening. 
I counsel you know what? patience. Okay, so I agree with you. Patience is important. However, let me draw this distinction, my dear friend. Other people who are not members of Congress have already been charged, are already in prison right now. Is there two separate laws in this country? I, I believe that there are. And that's exactly why I ended up doing time. Explain to me why none of the members of the House of the Senate who were involved in the insurrection have been held to the same level of accountability that the Oath Keepers or any of these other insurrectionist bastards have been. It's as easy to prove what they were doing as it is the other people. I just don't understand why there's no accountability. I, and it's not like they don't have two years worth of facts. They do. They have testimony. They have videos. They have, they have emails and text messages. What more do you need than two people engaging in conversation about an insurrection and participating in it, and those scumbags still get to wear the congressional pin around their neck? It, it burns me alive. I can't stand it. Well, um, accountability is coming for them, too. If, for example, in Congress, uh, if they uh, try to take on, uh, if they try to take on uh, Bragg, they try to subpoena him in, enforce that subpoena to talk about this case, they're going to go to court and they're going to be slapped down. You know? Their own words making so clear that they want to interfere with the case. Uh, their own words uh, hang an anvil around their necks for that purpose. So patience, Michael. It's going to the voters are not going to tolerate these. These people got elected by a much narrower than predicted margin to take over the House of Representatives to deliver results. What have they delivered so far, my friend? Bupkis. Ungats. Bupkis. <laughs> Nothing, as we like Ungats. to say in Brooklyn. Well, Nothing. That's, yeah, Bupkis. Hey, that's, my, so, that's my Brooklyn lingo. Exactly. Gornish. So, Norm, look. Gornish. Yeah, Gornish Let me is translate right. Ungats. I'll translate it into Mamalushin. Gornish. Nothing. There you go. So, look, Norm, as you know, we always have a lot of fun uh, on the show. The hour goes by quickly. I have this one last question for you. In the midst of all of these Trump legal actions, the chaos, and so on, how does Joe Biden compete for airspace? Because if you think about it, Biden has been quiet on Trump and just going about his business. By the way, he's still doing good things for the country, but no one knows. I mean, it's all watching Lardass get into his plane, fly it to New York, and then fly back. I mean, it's been Donald Trump 24-7 for good reason. But what about Joe Biden? I mean, two more years of Trump dominating the news cycle. I, I really do believe that it could affect the 2024 election. Now, I want to ask you your opinion. Do you think it will be good for Biden and Democratic candidates to get out there do something, say something, try to take over some media so that people know what they're doing, or no, this just is continue no. to say nothing. 
Biden should have nothing to do with any of these matters. He should not comment beyond saying, you know, we'll let the rule of law take its course. No comment. We're, you know, almost uh, uh, we're we're let's see, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November. We're more than 18 months away from the 2024 general election. There's plenty of time for Biden to fill the airwaves. My analysis of the polling data and the uh, other political science evidence is that the more focus there is on Trump's wrongdoing, the worse he and the Republicans do in every election up and down the ballot. This has been a... um, you know, um, uh, a revelation, I think, to the, all the proceedings. That's why I did impeachment. That's why I wrote my book, A Case for the American People. We started this with the emoluments case on day one of minute one, literally minute one of the Trump administration. Hundreds of legal matters I've dealt with since the impeachment. We made the case to the American people. Donald Trump is a corrupt president. Everything else is I predicted in the last chapter of the book, he's now he's going to interfere with the elections because that's what the impeachment was about. And sure enough, he did it in 2016. He did it in 2019, Ukraine. He did it big time in 2020. So, um, you know, um, Biden can lay low. The American people will pass judgment. Your participation has been a big part of that. Um, I think now it's time where we started, time for you to stand back from this case. Let the justice system do its work. But you know, I'll always be on here to talk about whatever you want to talk about, Michael. Well, I always appreciate you, Norm. There's no one that tells it like like it is, <laughs> whether I like it or not. So I appreciate <laughs> you. I appreciate you coming on. Um, this is going to be a bumpy ride. It's going to be a bumpy ride for America. It's going to be a bumpy ride for the for justice, um, for the Justice Department. It's going to be a bumpy ride for everybody. So as I tell everybody, you know, buckle up because it's going to get ugly, certainly ugly before, you know, it gets nice out. That's, there's no doubt in my mind on that. And I want to thank you as always. Um, Stay safe, my friend. And yes, I need to have you back very, very soon. Thanks, brother. Talk soon. You got it. And now for today's mea culpa. I read this today. MAGA should mean make accountability great again. And this has been a week about accountability. But perhaps the most specific instance of accountability didn't happen in the courtroom. It happened in a full page ad in the New York Times. So a little context before I go on. Years ago in 1989, race baiting Donald Trump spent $85,000, I mean that's a fucking lot of money back then, on a full page ad in the New York Times calling for the death penalty, you may remember this, for the Central Park Five. The black and Hispanic kids, all 16 years old and under, were accused of violently raping a female jogger in Central Park. Trump's headline read, bring back the death penalty, bring back our police. After spending 13 years in prison, the Central Park Five were eventually found innocent when the real rapists came forward and they were exonerated. 
they are now known as the Exonerated Five. And despite their proven innocence, Trump never apologized for railroading those boys. He never apologized for ruining decades of their lives and the lives of their families. Why? Because he never admits to a mistake and he will never, ever, ever take accountability or responsibility for anything. Trump just said, and I quote, they admitted their guilt. You have people on both sides of that when confronted about the wrongly convicted five. It reminds me a lot of what he said about the Charlottesville schmucks after the murder of Heather Heyer. Good people on both sides. Donald, I call fucking bullshit. There are not good people on both sides. But it's Trump, so we've come to expect it. Now, ironically, as Trump is indicted for something he is absolutely guilty of, one of the exonerated five has taken out an ad. The headline reads, Bring back justice and fairness. Build a brighter future for Harlem. That was by Yusuf Salam. He put out a full-page ad in the New York Times on the day that Trump was arraigned, more than 30 years after Trump called for his execution. Salam, who was running to represent Central Harlem on the New York City Council, tweeted on Tuesday night, and I quote, After several decades and an unfortunate and disastrous presidency, we all know who exactly Donald J. Trump is, a man who seeks to deny justice and fairness for others while claiming only innocence for himself. And trust me, there's nobody that agrees with Salam on that shit more than me. Salam's full-page open letter called out Trump's actions towards him and his friends, even after the government cleared them of the attack. The letter talks about how Trump continued to incite animus against Salam, his peers, and their families. The boys later said that they admitted that they falsely confessed to the crime because of the pressure from the police. One boy said his father told them to tell the police what they wanted to hear. Now all these years later, Salam calls Trump's trials and tribulations karma and further condemned Trump's actions, writing, and I quote, you were wrong then and you are wrong now. He also wrote that he will not resort to hatred, bias, or racism, and that he wishes Trump no harm. Rather, Salam said, I am putting my faith in the judicial system to seek out the truth. I hope that you exercise your civil liberties to the fullest and that you get what the exonerated five did not get, a presumption of innocence and a fair trial. Well, karma indeed, and nobody knows karma boomerang, again, better than me. So thank you, Yusuf Salam, for reminding us of how the past can so often come back to haunt us. Wishing him good luck in his city council race, and I'm hoping that all the exonerated five are feeling a little vindicated as Trump finally meets his fate. And as always, thanks for listening. Mayor Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump 
Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth.